This podcast is brought to you by EcoJot. EcoJot designs and produces beautiful journals, notebooks, and planners, all made in Canada from 100% post-consumer recycled paper. They support four wonderful organizations, including Animal Justice, through sales of some of their designs. Get 15% off of your total order, excluding cause-related products, at ecojot.com using code PAW15 at checkout. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 71 of the Pawn Order podcast. I'm Camille Labchuk, joined by my co-host, Peter Sankoff, today. Hey, Peter. Happy anniversary. I feel like doing that old song, but no one would know it. It was from the Flintstones, and I watched it growing up. It's our happy anniversary, Camille. Did you know it was our three-year anniversary today? I didn't until you posted about it on Facebook this morning. And in case <laughs> listeners are wondering which specific anniversary we're talking about, <laughs> it's it's the Pawn Order anniversary. Yeah, it was three years ago today, and uh, I wouldn't have known about it either in case, unless Facebook reminded me because I just forgot. But three years ago today, our first ever Pawn Order came out. <laughs> That is very exciting news. Now, the dates won't match up, of course, for this week's release. But nonetheless, today is our three-year anniversary. Camille, what did you get me? Oh, you wanted a gift? What? It's our leather <laughs> anniversary. I don't know how that happened, but it's our... Oh, our, my God. Is it our pleather anniversary? Because <laughs> I checked I, it up. Yeah. Do you want a pleather jacket? I don't know if I can picture you wearing like a pleather biker's jacket. That's not really your style. And I already have. I, 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 I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna advertise what kind of bag I have because they're not a sponsor on our show. But we, you know, we could get. <laughs> but I think those bags, bags are sold through yeah. the Grinning Goat, which is a sponsor. There you, so there go. you go. That's true. We're gonna have to get each other something from the Grinning Goat to celebrate our leather anniversary. Very exciting news. Very exciting. Hey, any excuse to shop at the Grinning Goat, I'll take it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I feel, I actually, I'll be perfectly honest. I think you said the same thing when you saw the note on Facebook. I kind of, I had to actually mentally count. Like I, I didn't, I would have thought two, like for some Me reason, too. Yeah. three years, but then I did the numbers. I mean, we're at episode number 71 and we do do about, you know, 24, 25, you know, 23 to 24 episodes a year. So yeah, it's every two weeks. So that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? It does. But yeah, I would have thought two years as well. I suppose this whole past year was just sort of like went into this weird mental time warp. 
Like it doesn't really feel like time has passed, but it also feels like a million years have passed in one year. So maybe that kind of messes with our sense of this. That's probably true. I'm not sure it's just the the COVID time warp that does it, but I, I, I take your point. I still think I'd be like three years. Holy crap. That's uh, really went really went fast. Where did the time go, Camille? It seems like just yesterday we were talking about, I have no idea. I don't remember what we talked about in episode one. I do. It was, um, well, actually, maybe that was episode two. We did episode two on federalism, which is still one of yeah, our most I listened think that's, to episodes. I think that's, that sounds about right. Cause that I was think episode in my... one was just sort of like, oh, welcome to the podcast. No, wasn't episode one federalism and episode two was in my animal law class. I think we did a live show, something like that. But in any event, I will say um, it's kind of a shame because I realized like we don't do an anniversary special. Um, Maybe we'll have to do like round number specials because we do our Christmas spectacular, not special, our Christmas (laughs) spectacular. Um, But we don't do anniversary shows. I know the only thing I know we've done for sure is we've promised that episode 100, which by then, (laughs) let's hope the COVID vaccine (laughs) has been, that's like, that's 30 something shows away. And it's like, well, 29 shows away, but I'm still not confident we'll be able to travel. But we are going to the whale sanctuary for 100 but maybe we need to do a 75th anniversary special too i don't know something sure sure listeners let us know do you want specials do you want like cool different content we are happy to oblige your wishes i like it because we have done we have done we've obviously done live shows too and specials but anyway so that's our three years i'm very excited yeah happy anniversary my friend happy anniversary (laughs) so uh what else is uh going on with you camille my god i can only guess that it has been a while in fact the last time i spoke to you on the show was uh the holiday spectacular and my god it was just maddie the bunny maddie the bunny so what is what are the latest shenanigans and hijinks of maddie the foster bunny well, if you're a perceptive listener, you might actually be able to hear the sound of a paper bag crinkling in the background right now. That is Maddie the bunny. So she's my foster bunny. I've had her for a few weeks now. She's lovely, just a total sweetheart. And you know what's cool about bunny rabbits as companions, Peter, is that their toys are basically things you're going to throw in the recycling bin. Like if you got a cardboard box, throw it in the bunny area and the bunny like goes wild. She attacks this Kleenex box all the time, which is hilarious. She, like, fights it. And I gave her a paper bag that I got from takeout recently, and she's just going nuts on the bag. She's chewing it. Oh, God, it's so noisy. Anyway, I don't really want to go up and, like, disturb her because she's having fun, but... If my audio is a little wonky, it's we'll the bunny's fault. By the way, Camille is not uh, um, an actual mom of kid children, but she may know, and our listeners who are moms may know, that the same rule applies to like toddlers when they're about one to two who just love the box more than any present they get. They just want the <laughs> box. That's all. We used to get our kids things, and for weeks on end, they'd take the toy out, leave it in the corner, and play with the box. That's what they did. So bunnies wow, and so children, bunnies. very very similar. Cats too. Cats love going in boxes as well. It's just, I don't know, enclosed spaces. It's cool. Well, that is uh, good to know. I'm happy Maddie the foster bunny is doing well. I'm I'm beginning to think she might not be a foster bunny though. That's just a, (laughs) a sneaking suspicion I have. Oh, God, I've got a pretty bad track record when it comes to foster failing, so I'm going to try not to fall into this trap this time, because eventually this pandemic will be over and I'll probably have to travel all the time again, so we'll see. But yeah, so that's that's me. That's about it. We're in ostensibly in like a new lockdown in Ontario, 
but I don't know if you have reviewed the text of the regulation that creates this stay-at-home order, Peter, but there's 29 exceptions to it, which are, can be used to justify any purpose that one might like to use to leave the house. So it doesn't really feel like much has changed. Uh, yeah, talking about lockdowns, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we are allowed to go outside again, and you guys have always been allowed to go outside, but we are, uh, that is news, actually, as of yesterday, yesterday, we're allowed to meet people outside again, that was actually banned in Alberta for over a month, so uh, huh. I have yet to take advantage of that loophole, it's not really a loophole, because it's actually part of the law, but uh, yes, that's really, actually, we're quite excited about it, it'll be nice to see some people we have not seen um, anybody like in a social setting, uh, since, uh, December, early December, literally, uh, we went out with some friends in early December for an outdoor event and it's been banned ever since. Wow. What a weird time that we're living through. Yeah. Wow. Very weird. Now, Camille, um, it's, it's almost, it feels wrong to do this on our three year anniversary, but I feel obliged <laughs> <laughs> to bring up the fact that I've been cheating on you. <laughs> I've started yeah, I've, I've, I've started, started to see some suspicious tweets, Peter. I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> this is What's like the weirdest the weirdest conversation <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> it's like I'm talking I'm talking about cheating on my podcast partner with my daughter <laughs> it's like it's a very oh it's a very weird discussion um it is true i am now i've hinted at this in the past i am officially a podcast bigamist that's just the only way i can say it camille i have a new love in my life <laughs> and it's hard not to love her because like she's you know the apple of my eye uh, she's I, pretty lovable <laughs> i am doing a brand new podcast and i'm doing it with my daughter my daughter penny and uh it is just fantastic yeah what's it called the podcast is called translating criminal law rated g um we rated have g i didn't rated know about g. that part of the name well the rated g okay. is important because we well we wanted all the parents uh to know as we explained in the first episode that we are going to be talking about the criminal law but we're not going to be getting into any of the nasty bits that make up the criminal law we use very um child-friendly examples to explain the goal of the podcast is essentially it's a conversation between my daughter and I about what the criminal law actually does and how it works and why it works the way it does. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we have uh, we, we've posted the first episode and we have just finished recording the second episode, which is going out today. Wow. Well, well good for you guys. Penny's a smart little cookie. And yeah, I, I expect good things from this. She cool concept. I got to say, you know, it's a little, it's a little suspicious, Peter. You back out of Paw and Order in the summer. You decide you're going to go down to halftime co-host. And the reason for that is that you're too busy, but then you go and start another podcast. I'm beginning to think it wasn't Paw and Order. It was just me. Well, there is a loophole, Camille, because one of the reasons I had to uh, take some time off from Paw and Order and devote more things was because I needed to spend more time with my family. You see? Oh, so, you so sound like a politician. Was, no, but it's true. If I had just gone out and done any other podcast, I think the critique would be valid. But the, the reality is the reason I did this is because it's it's been a lot of fun. My daughter and I um, have found it's, it's quite hard to bond with 11-year-olds 
year-olds, as parents out there will know. So we have had a lot of fun doing this. She's actually brought it into her class. They're listening to it in class. I'm doing a, a, a Zoom with her class next week. So it is, it's really been just about really getting to spend time with my daughter, and it's been fun to do it. So we go out on Sunday. We prep the show. This week we went to Starbucks. We like we prep the show together, then we do it, then we tweet about it. It's 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 fun. So I accept your point, but in this case, I'm using the uh, bonding with my daughter exception in my contract that allows me to start another podcast. Well, I'd be a little more annoyed about your bigamy if your halftime you know, status with pod and order didn't result in Jessica Scott rejoining the show, who's just tremendous. Sure, so I absolutely. think it all worked out. I think it worked out uh, very, very well. And speaking of having worked out, Camille, I mean, you didn't even congratulate me on my latest award, Camille. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back in front in the award sweepstakes. God damn it. Somebody give me a prize. I've got to catch up with this guy. So, Peter, I hear you won a clobby. I did. That is now my fourth clobby with different. The funny thing is I have four clobbies and none of them are for the same thing. They're all totally What's this different. clobby for? So this clobby is not for podcasting. Um, this plot, this clobby was essentially for the 100 Interns Project. And essentially, oh. they recognized me for, uh, it was a very interactive online project. So as a result, um, yeah, I, I can't remember what they called it. It was about best use of online platform. Um, so something like that. But I, I can't even remember what the clobby was for. Now well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's well deserved. I feel a little bit like left out. Like I kind of forgot about the clobbies this year. I yeah, didn't see a bunch of tweets about them. Actually, I take it back. Oh. I don't have four different. They're in four different categories, but I have two with Paw and Order with you, of course. And we, but we got those in different categories, if you remember, because the first year they didn't have a podcast category. So the se- the second year we got best podcast, but the first year it was like best audio record. I don't remember what it's called. Anyway, I have four and now I'm like stumping for the Hall of Fame. They have a Hall of Fame category and I'm like, I have four clobbies in different categories. I want in. I want to go to the Hall. I want to go to the Hall of Fame. I've always thought about a Hall of Fame induction speech. It would be a magical event. That's what I'm waiting for. Well, listeners, prepare for Peter to become even more insufferable should that somehow be possible. It's on its way. Insufferable. Insufferable. Absolutely. Anyway, that is, uh, yeah, that is my quality. Oh, that's your update. All right. Well, we're going to bring you a very interesting interview that I did with Peter Brandt, who's an animal protection litigation lawyer in the States with the Humane Society of the United States. Had a great chat about his new book, Indefensible. So we're going to get into that. But first... I wanted to remind everybody about the Animal Justice Academy. Now, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be just about to start. And if you haven't already heard the details, this is an amazing six weeks online course that is designed to help you become a better advocate. So empower you with the tools you need to be your most effective and make change for animals in whatever way works for you. We've got over 80 incredible speakers slash instructors for this online event. Most of the modules are ones that you can watch in your own time. They're only about 10 to 20 minutes long. And we'll have a few live episodes every week too. Uh, If you listened to our last episode, you would have heard a lot more of the details from Kimberly Carroll, the Academy Director and a board member with Animal Justice. And it's not too late to sign up. So if you want to, visit animaljusticeacademy.com. We've already got over 2,500 people enrolled, Peter. Can you believe that? That is unbelievable. I actually heard it was 3,000, but hey, um, who's counting? I just got an email this morning that said 3,000, but maybe it is over 2,500, but maybe you're behind the news, Camille. 
I probably am. My info is a couple days old. So that's, yeah. That's amazing. That totally blowing really a, a past our expectations. Yeah. Well, they yeah. heard you were involved, Camille, so they couldn't resist. The award-winning Camille Lachey. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And uh, top of that, as always, this show thrives on reviews. It helps us reach more listeners. It never hurts to get uh, another of those five-star reviews that really, uh, again, it's one way of just promoting the show, getting us up the rankings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We got a new review. We love reading reviews from L this week. Thank you, Pawn Order. You're welcome, Al. I really appreciate being able to get vegan and animal rights news that is Canada-specific. The hosts are all wonderful and very knowledgeable, and I definitely want to be their friend. Oh, wow. Well, we can always use new friends, can't we, Camille? I want to be your friend too, Al. That's awesome. Thank you. love that. Love that. Love that. Cool. And if you want to do even more for the podcast, you can consider supporting us on Patreon. And we actually have a new Patreon uh, supporter to shout out this week, Roxanne. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for joining us. It's amazing. We're so happy to have you. And uh, through Patreon, we actually have prizes that you can get if you sign up to support us for as little as a dollar a month. Um, At the $5 level, you'll get a mailed card to say thank you. But you also get a Pawn Order sticker, Peter. The stickers are stylish. I have a sticker, my sticker. Look at this. You're going to see this because we are doing this live in video. Can you? Oh, it's on the side of your printer. Very nice. Every day. Very nice. Yes. Well, I have one too, and I have yet to choose a location for it. Maybe the back of my phone. $20 (laughs) a month, you get your choice between an official pod order mug or a t-shirt. I have both, and they're both great. I have both too, but you'll notice I'm not drinking from my pod order mug. And that's just because my coffee has to go in the big mug. I need the big yeah. mug. I use Pawn Order I for you. my tea. I don't mind when I drink tea. I like a smaller mug, but coffee mug, we got to, we got to, Shannon, we got to upsize the Pawn Order mug. <laughs> we need like the Pawn Order coffee mug. Yeah, it's a little on the smaller side. It's fine, but it depends, depends what size of beverage one prefers. I'm a big beverage drinker. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Camille. <laughs> <laughs> we also have those t-shirts available for anyone to purchase at shop.animaljustice.ca. And if you're supporting us at over $10 a month on Patreon, you get a 15% discount in our online store. So there's our pitch to sign up. All right, Camille, into the news today. And um, as usual, it's a lot of, oh, sigh. Is it just bad news today, Camille? We couldn't find a good news story, could we? It's just wow, bad news. it looks news like it is. I looked at it and I'm like, oh my God, it's bad news. I was like, what am I going to start with? Bad news or worse news? Let's start with bad news. Uh, Manitoba's Independent Investigation Unit is looking into whether a member of the RCMP intentionally ran over a dog who was sitting on the roadway. And they're doing that because they received a complaint that a member of the RCMP intentionally intentionally ran over a dog who was sitting on the roadway. Not a lot of details in this particular story, Camille, but we have seen situations like this before. Yeah, it's incredibly troubling. And unfortunately, part of what I think is a pattern of police running over and hurting animals in this way. So this incident allegedly occurred January 11th in uh, Pukatawagan, which is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a community in northern Manitoba. 
And it says potentially that an RCMP officer was operating a police vehicle and intentionally struck this dog. Now, if this sounds familiar, Peter, maybe it's because it is. I don't know if you recall the situation just last year. Well, it was about two years ago in Lethbridge mm. where an officer repeatedly ran over a deer. And fortunately for, for us and for the public, a member of the public caught that incident oh, on camera. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the deer's screams. You can hear the reaction from the person who was filming it. They're just horrified at the long, drawn-out death of this deer. The deer you know, seemed to be injured in some way, but the officer didn't call a vet, the officer didn't call wildlife services, didn't call the SPCA, didn't call local animal services, didn't call anyone, just decided that he had to kill this deer and he was going to do so by running over the deer. And at the end of a special or special incident response team, I think that's the the name for the agency in Alberta that investigates the police for incidents, Mm, Uh, they decided he did nothing wrong. Yeah. That's Ontario, actually. ACERT is Alberta. Sorry, ACERT. That's correct. I was thinking of yeah. Ontario. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's we have so little information, but there's a couple of things that are are useful. So, like the the is the well, I have a couple of questions. One is the IIU. That's the uh, the IIU is not the animal because Manitoba has an independent animal control body as well. But the IIU, I'm assuming, is the the equivalent of ACERT. That's right. It's a police oversight thing. Yeah. And the, the, the only piece of information that I find interesting is it seems that it was reported by a member of the RCMP. Or, or am I misreading that? Because it seems like it one seem. officer is reporting on another. Yeah. Unless it was a complaint from the public that was given to the officers and they felt they had an obligation to pass it on to the IIU. I don't really know. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not very clear in terms of the detail, but it's definitely uh, something we will follow up on. Because, uh, again, there is this concern that this sort of thing in the way in which the police treat animal incidents. Uh, and I don't know, obviously, what was the nature of this incident. Like, again, it's it's in the last case with the Alberta case you were mentioning, um, I believe, I don't think I want to use the word misguided, Camille, because I think that's an understatement of what it was. But it was a horribly misguided way of trying to euthanize a deer. Is that, uh, you know, an accurate restatement of what happened? At its very best, if you accept everything the officer says, it's a horribly misguided euthanasia attempt. At its worst, potentially it's a criminal animal cruelty offense correct Who knows? and and we don't know what the circumstances of this one were again this could have been another horribly misguided at best euthanasia attempt or horribly wrongful way to deal with a dog that was viewed as being potentially dangerous like i don't know obviously what the facts are i'm not sure what facts short of a complete emergency would justify the intentional striking of a dog by a car I, I could literally only think of, you know, that dog is literally about to inflict imminent harm on an individual and there is literally no other way to stop it in the circumstances. That's about the only situation I could see that would probably be justified under the criminal code. Very troubling. And there, there is one other example, actually, where uh, at least it, it was the SIU that decided that the police had not acted improperly in an Ontario case. So the OPP, uh, an officer, ran over a dog in Collingwood, Ontario, a few years ago. And this became news at the time, too, because, again, there were images of it. And again, you know, interesting that the only time these stories seem to come out, or at least the examples that we've seen, are when someone happens to videotape and it makes you wonder how many more there are. But in this case, Peter, 
The dog who was killed was an old, inoffensive dog who got out of his yard. Police officer decided the dog was a coyote and that he had to kill the coyote for some reason with his vehicle. Um, once again, nothing improper was found to have occurred. They accepted that he believed the dog was a coyote as if that makes it somehow better. And the dog was ran over repeatedly. So, you know, troubling stuff. We'll be watching this for sure. I don't like to say this, but I'm not expecting a lot given the history of stories like this, but I hope that we'll see some answers at least. Yes, so do I, Camille. Now, I believe um, after going through this story, we're going to look at the story we just did as our good news story. It's quite possible <laughs> by comparison. That's how disturbing this particular story is. Yeah, this one's horrifying. So uh, information came out via CTV in Vancouver about an illegal shipment of birds that transited through Canada. So the shipment, I say, was illegal for a couple of reasons. It was toucans and other exotic birds being transported from Guyana in South America via Canada, ultimately to Tokyo. And very likely, Peter, we don't know for sure, but very likely these birds are being shipped for use in the exotic pet trade, potentially a zoo. But there were multiple toucans. Um, I think, I forget now how many it was, like in the 50s or 60s, yep. there were dozens of them. And what happened is they were flown into YYZ, Toronto Airport, Pearson. And someone was supposed to be feeding or watering them there. And then they were going to Vancouver, where they would potentially be fed or watered again for this total journey, which would have taken about 41 hours. The person in Toronto put out a call for volunteers to go water in Vancouver, I guess, because there hadn't been someone else lined up. It's a little bit unclear how that actually occurred. But some local volunteers, including an avian veterinarian, went out there to try to help these birds and feed and water them at the airport. And when the volunteers got there, they found birds in terrible condition, Peter. M many of them didn't have appropriate food or water. They looked lethargic. One toucan had already died, and another one seemed on death's door. So they did everything that they could to help. And they called the CFIA to, to step in and find out more information about this shipment because it seemed that the shipment didn't have the appropriate permits. If you go to the CFIA's website, they actually say that toucans from Guyana can't even transit through Canada. Now, there's good reasons for that, because birds are one of the biggest carriers of influenza-like diseases that can become mutated, you know, pandemic-style viruses that can cause serious outbreaks. But somehow, this shipment was allowed into the country and then was released by the CFIA despite the death and the suffering. So it's a failure on two significant fronts. It's kind of staggering. I, I just... Again, it's the kind of thing where I try to imagine this occurring in a different context and my brain starts to like break apart as I think about it. It's like, so let's be clear. Someone at the, at the outside of the border sends a shipment that is illegal into Canada. Okay. So like, first of all, it's illegal because you're not allowed to ship these birds. Let's start with that. But then there's clear evidence reported to the investigating agency, which let me stress, both of those officers, customs officers and CFIA agents have the ability to either lay charges under the criminal code or notify the police that they wish to lay charges under the criminal code. So there is evidence. And of, seize the birds. And seize the birds. Of course, there is evidence of cruelty and suffering. There is evidence at at the very least of incredible negligence in the way in which these birds were shipped into Canada. And the response is, have a great day, everybody. Let's get your birds back to you. Just ship them on their way. It's just absolutely staggering. It's a staggering disregard of the actual offenses that we have in place. And of course, by the way, 
they went through the Vancouver International Authority. So, I mean, although they're, since they're, I'm, I'm assuming they're in transit of some sort, but nonetheless, they are in British Columbia. It seems to me the Provincial Act would apply even if you could come to the staggering conclusion that, that it, it wasn't willful cruelty or at least uh, cruelty by negligence. Indeed, there, there are many levels of authority here that could have kicked in to protect these birds and just didn't. So I think the CFIA and the CBSA have a lot to answer for here. And so far, those answers have not been forthcoming. The CFIA did admit to CTV journalists who covered the story that they didn't have permits for that shipment. But there was no real response given to the question as to why they allowed the shipment to continue and didn't seize or assist those birds in any way. So it's an abject failure on so many levels. Seriously, drug dealers from South America are deeply upset they don't get the same treatment, Camille. They send their drugs into Canada. They're intercepted. And it's weird that those custom agents don't just allow the shipment to continue. No foul. It was only going to Japan. Just send it on its way. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's mind-boggling and really aggravating. And again, Again, like always, we come back to the same point. It shows the alarming uh, lack of care. And honestly, that's the only way I can say it. The utter lack of we don't give a crap because these are only animals involved. It is just, it's really, it's really a struggle for me to comprehend how you have these living beings enter the country illegally, clearly in distress. They're in enough distress that you send out a call to get help for them. And then you just send them on their way. No big deal. Let them get harmed in Japan or wherever they end up. Absolutely mind-boggling, absolutely upsetting, and something I hope we follow up on. Oh, we will. We will. Ugh, awful stuff. Bah. All right. All right. Well, you know, I suppose this next story, story is probably the closest we're going to get to a good news story in this situation <laughs> because it's a story about the RCMP in Alberta investigating the Cargill slaughterhouse over a COVID-19 outbreak and specifically a death that occurred during this outbreak. Uh, this is apparently the first known police investigation into a COVID-19 workplace fatality, which is good to see. But it's a sad story, Peter. It mm. involves the, the death of a, a man named Benito Casada, who was a 51-year-old immigrant from Mexico with a wife and four children. And he died, he was hospitalized and eventually died in mid-April at the height of that plant's coronavirus outbreak. Um, just awful stuff. He was in a coma and then on a ventilator when he died on May 7th, and his family couldn't even be with him to, to visit except to say goodbye. So the uh, Casadas filed a complaint with the RCMP. They alleged that the company did not do enough to protect Benito from the coronavirus at the slaughterhouse, which... Again, don't know the facts yet, but seems pretty reasonable based on what the union was saying at the time and based on all the other news stories that came out about that horrible outbreak. So I'm glad to see an investigation. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just a really sad story. Yeah, I don't I don't know you know, great detail about this particular story or about, you know, slaughterhouses. I, I did catch in the story, of course, that slaughterhouses are deemed to be essential during COVID. And uh, one of the reasons they're essential is something we've talked about before on this show, which is the just-in-time production method in which, you know, you, you slow down the slaughterhouse, you're going to slow down every aspect of the meat production framework, which is designed to uh, keep things moving along as quickly as possible. And uh, that, to me, doesn't seem to be very well suited for a COVID outbreak. No, indeed it's not. And that's that's why we saw such such outbreaks, was that desire just to keep this meat industry machine going at all costs. Now, just an, an interesting little addendum here, uh, which I think 
suggests the power and political influence that Cargill has. Uh, Globe and Mail editors recently named Cargill as a top employer, one of the top Canadian employers for 2020, I think. Now, uh, there was a, a tweet I saw on Twitter, obviously, um, about the RCMP investigation that also references that uh, over 20 leading occupational health and safety researchers sent a letter to the Globe regarding this designation as Cargill being a top employer for 2021, which um, they think is completely at odds with the tragic and preventable uh, outbreak at Cargill's High River Slaughterhouse plant. And they go through some of the, um, you know, the ways that Cargill failed to protect its workers. So I, you know, I think I, I hope this type of investigation prompts companies like the Global Mail to rethink their support of a company like Cargill and more specifically this industry as a whole, because it is rotten to the core. It abuses animals and it does not care about workers. Absolutely. Now we are... Uh... While we're talking COVID-19, as we know, and we've spoken of um, on this podcast before, especially in relation to mink, uh, that humans are not the only ones suffering from COVID-19. Now we get uh, some terrible news that, um, boy, it's our old friends in the zoos, Camille, um, that uh, gorillas at the San Diego Zoo have now contracted COVID-19. Yeah, that's right. And, and, these gorillas appear to be the first known cases among primates in the U.S. and possibly the world. No one else has reported cases amongst primates yet. But yeah, apparently eight gorillas who live together at the park are believed to have caught the virus and several have been par uh, have been coughing. And they think the virus came from a member of the wildlife care team who tested positive for the virus, although has been asymptomatic. So, yeah, really, really sad for those guys. Um, I, I haven't heard anything further about their prognosis, so I hope that they're going to be okay. But just a really stark reminder that this disease doesn't just affect us. It can affect animals in pretty serious indirect ways, as with slaughterhouses and, you know, lines of production. But also directly going to gorillas, tigers, minks, all kinds of animals who might suffer pretty serious effects. Yes, absolutely. The sooner we can get this done, the better. And uh, zoos are certainly not immune. I'm really interested, actually, you know, to see this is just on a separate uh, point, Camille, but like, I can't imagine Canadian zoos are thriving during this current uh, time. Uh, zoos and safari parks seem to me to be a uh, natural problem for the coronavirus. And I, I can only imagine given uh, the costs of keeping all these animals uh, alive and in good health that they are their financial model is in some degree of disarray. Yeah, and, and what I hope comes out of this is just a rethink of this industry and whether it's still a legitimate institution in 2021. Absolutely. There are many ways to spend your hard-earned money, but if you're like us, you're a fan of ethically produced products that have always supported wonderful causes. EcoJot was launched as a Canadian-made stationery company that combines locally made journals and planners with beautiful designs using 100% post-consumer recycled paper from the award-winning Cascades Mill in Quebec. Designed by Carolyn Gavin, a wonderful artist who uses words and imagery to create bright and happy covers, their journals and planners can be customized, making them wonderful gifts and thoughtful gifts for those who are special to you. As listeners of Paw and Order, you can get 15% off your total order, excluding cause-related products, at ecojot.com using the code PAW15 at checkout. You can also find Ecojot on Facebook and Instagram at ecojot. That's E-C-O-J-O-T. 
All right. Well, coming up, my interview with uh, Humane Society of the United States litigator Peter Brandt. Okay, and for today's main segment, I'm excited to be joined by Peter Brandt, who's the managing attorney for farm animals at the nation's largest animal protection organization. I should say the American nation's largest animal protection organization, the Humane Society of the United States. In 2017, he was a farm animal law and policy fellow with the Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program. As an adjunct professor, Peter has taught classes on farm animal law and policy at Lewis and Clark's Northwestern School of Law. His writings on animal protection have been published in the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Examiner, and Salon. And he is joining me today to talk about his new book, Indefensible Adventures of an Animal Protection Lawyer. So Peter, welcome to Pine Order. Hey, thank you so much. Well, I wanted to start off just by asking you some like basic questions about yourself. And in particular, a lot of our listeners are currently in law school or thinking about getting into animal law type careers. So I know they're always very curious to hear about people's paths towards doing the type of work that they now do. And Canadian animal law, it's, it's so much less developed, unfortunately, than uh, it is in the States. And there's just so many fewer positions. So I'm sure our student listeners and probably everyone else would be very curious to learn about your um, path towards becoming an animal protection lawyer. And I know from reading the book that you didn't go there straight out of um, college. You took some time to do some other things first. So maybe you can fill us in on your path towards becoming an animal protection lawyer. Yeah, um, did some other things first is a very charitable way of describing my, my 20s. Uh, um, I, yeah, I got out of school and um, I spent most of my 20s, like I lived in Los Angeles and then um, Seattle um, so I had like a good eight year stretch before I went back to law school. Well, something like that. Anyway, I went back right as I was turning 30 about, um, and, um, yeah, I just had a lot of soul crushing temp jobs, um, in Seattle. Um, I had one job where, um, this guy started a, a revolutionary service where you could buy sheet music online. And uh, I worked at his company and all I had to do was push a button every 15 minutes to make sure the server hadn't crashed. Wow. That's all I did. So I could, I had a lot of free time. And at the time I had friends in tech a little bit and they're like, you know, they have a program that does that. <laughs> like you don't need a live human being, but there was two of us. Like we were like launching a nuclear missile or something. Just in case one of you missed the 15 minute mark, yeah. would be on hand. <laughs> So I had this job and yeah, it was the kind of job where I went in to collect my paycheck and they're like, oh, we, we let you go like two weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> but the temp agency just didn't tell me. Um, so I had a lot of weird jobs like that. But then I got, some, I did have like a few entry level activism jobs in, in California and Los Angeles and Seattle. And um, those were on ballot initiatives. Um, and that's sort of how I, I met the people at HSUS, um, some of the people. Um, and so eventually when I got out of law school, I was, I was sort of a known quantity, I think, um, when I applied for a job at HSUS. Oh, cool. So funny enough, I actually, I hadn't thought of this until, until now, but I actually, my path towards going to law school was also influenced by HSUS or HSI, which operates oh, yeah. in Canada. 
um, I knew I wanted to do something more for animals, but I wasn't sure what. And it didn't occur to me that people had full-time careers doing this type of work until I went to the seal hunt for the first time with a number of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, wow, this is actually a career option. So yeah, you had that a similar experience. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important and um, to see sort of people that could be mentors or people that actually are mentors of like, oh, this is a person in their 30s, you know, late 30s that actually is living an adult life and like can sort of make a living and is actually making a difference. Like it was really important to, ha to have that experience um, before I went back to school. I think it, maybe it made it seem more possible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And now you do manage to make a difference in your work as the managing attorney for farm animals at HSUS. And in the book, you discuss some of the cases that you've been involved with over the years, for example, um, environmental nuisance litigation against a factory egg farm, an undercover investigation, uh, which made huge headlines at the time at the Hallmark Cow Slaughterhouse in California. So those are a couple of examples, but maybe you could fill our listeners in a little bit on what your day-to-day -day workload looks like for somebody focused full-time on farm animal protection. Yeah. Um, so um, it's become, I, I supervised a couple of attorneys um, and um, they don't need supervision really, which is great. Um, so I'm sort of more like, like I'll give you an example. Like in November, we had a couple of really big briefs um, do appeals of a federal case in California. Um, and there's just a whole team of us. So I'm sort of in a reviewing like supervisor role, um, but I have all these gifted attorneys I work with. And so, you know, one of my colleagues wrote the brief and then I reviewed it, but there was really like a whole bunch of us reviewing it. And it's more like, we just sort of discuss things and we all have different ideas and we fight about what's most important and you know, strategic calls and stuff like that. But so the short story is I'm more in a reviewing role now. And in my earlier career, I guess this is pretty typical. I was writing the briefs more myself. I do get to write some stuff once in a while and I really like doing that. And uh, it's, the first few hours are a little rough because I'm rusty, you know, like, um, but yeah, I really love writing some things and I've been able to do that a little bit more lately. Um, and then, yeah, on my own time, I, I sort of wrote this book, um, but uh, yeah, so it's a lot of teamwork um, and I'm just really lucky. Like I've been, some, I've worked with a lot of the people I, that I work with today for a decade or nearly a decade or more. And so I've been really lucky there. They're a good crew. Mm. And so you and your team, you obviously do a fair amount of litigation. And uh, what other types of, of lawyerly work do you manage to do to make a difference for animals? Do you get involved in ballot initiatives still? Yeah, um, we definitely do. Um, it's been a couple years in the U.S., um, but there's just this whole, the life of ballot initiatives, like we will be involved in um, filing the language of the actual law, you know, the ballot initiative. So we have language that we've been tuning up, like, you know, since, you know, for more than a decade. And then you have to, of course, make sure that 
there are quirks about the state where you're passing it that you're dealing with because every state's a little bit different, you know, and, um, and then, you know, you have to get it passed. Um, that's become less of a challenge in the United States since 2008. Um, when the egg industry really fought about initiative in California, you know, they put like $10 million into opposing it and they just got crushed. Um, like nobody, like more people voted in California for our ballot initiative than voted for Barack Obama for president. Um, so, and he was pretty popular that in California. <laughs> yeah. So I think the lesson for the industry there was like, you can't win. Um, you know, it's just too hard to defend these practices when people see what they are, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so then there's a lot of defense, actually. That's what I was getting to. We spend a lot of time just defending these laws. Like that 2008 ballot initiative, there was like five or six lawsuits, one in federal court, a bunch, no, one in state court, a bunch in federal court. Um, and so we do that for years after these things passed. Um, and yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, the, one of the briefs I mentioned in we filed in November has to do with the ballot initiative also. So yeah, there's a lot of defensive stuff on, on the back end. Mm, yeah. Well, I remain as a Canadian where we aren't able to avail ourselves of ballot initiatives. I remain endlessly envious of that um, ability. Yeah. It's great. Of course, you also don't have to wonder about people walking around with um, semi-automatic weapons, I suppose. Yeah, you're <laughs> so it's right a bit of that. a trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think I probably vote to say up here, but yeah. Yeah. So Peter, you, you managed to write this book despite your very busy workload. I'm, I'm wondering, what, two questions. First of all, what was it that compelled or inspired you to put your thoughts down in, in writing it and write a book like this? And given your intensely busy job, how did you manage to find the time? It was rough. Um, and I never want to write anything with end notes or footnotes ever again, because yeah. that was brutal. <laughs> and everyone um, should know, Peter's book is very extensively footnoted. Every source is backed up. It's not like those sort of you know, like popular consumption books where there might be some citations at the end, but it's not really like a legally footnoted book. You can tell you're a lawyer by reading it. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, once you start doing that, like if you do that in one chapter, you kind of have to keep going, like, you know, with the other chapters. And it's just, it's easier to do that in a lot of ways. I don't know. It's still a good so resource for readers, I would say. So we appreciate it, despite the extra work <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, please make sure you read every endnote because it was such a pain to put those all in. Um, but uh, I, well, I taught this class um, I taught a law school class and as I was teaching it, I was, well, when I decided to teach it, I was like, I'm, I am inherently pretty lazy. And I'm like, if I'm going to do this class, which is a lot of extra work for not a lot of money, uh, which is the story of my life really, but um, you know, that's public interest work. So if I'm going to do this class, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get mileage out of it and like, um, you know, turn it into a book later, perhaps. And um, yeah, so, and I realized I, recently I listened to a David Sedaris interview. And so what I was doing was like a sad, like very small version of what he does, which is everything he publishes only, it only gets published after he's read it in front of like 60 live audiences. 
because um, he sees what people react to. And so that's what I was doing in the class. Like I was definitely testing jokes and stuff like that. And I oh. focused a lot on jokes, probably more than a law school professor should, you know, but um, I wanted to keep people, I've, I've taught classes before where I just, I'm positive people are buying shoes on the internet, you know, or um, planning their wedding. And so I just, I didn't want it. It's, that's so painful to sit there for like two hours, just talking to people that would rather be asleep, you know? Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the class really led into the book and then I couldn't have done the book without the Harvard fellowship, um, which I'm so happy I was able to do. Like they, they offered me this four month, fellowship so I basically 99% checked out of my day job for four months and wrote a lot of the book but then I did have to do the hard part was when I came back to work and had to keep going like I'd wake up at like five in the morning and write for two hours and then go to regular work and um but I loved it too like I would love to to write more stuff um I haven't done anything I finished the book mostly and 2017 and like did little bits of it here and there you know especially cleaning up end notes and stuff but I haven't done I keep saying I would like to do more writing but I haven't done anything so I think I needed a break anyway it's a long answer yeah no that's a lot I'm struck that you mentioned that David Sedaris was a bit of it well I don't know if you used the word inspiration but that your style kind of tracks him because I find that you're sort of the humor that you intersperse throughout the book as well is, is very much something that reminded me of of him and how it's peppered with personal stories. Um, you know, everything from jumping trains with your buddies to going to rock concerts to getting into various forms of trouble with your parents' car. And <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if that sort of humor and levity that you bring to the book, if that tracks your general approach and your attitude toward doing this work, which can be very heavy at times. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, it was very intentional, and it, it it did come from the class a little bit too. It's like, you know, um, I I in an early class I talked about farm animal transport in the United States, you know, which used to be all on trains, and it was horrible. And I I decided to like tell stories about being a teenager and sneaking into the train yards in Tacoma, Washington, and hopping on freight trains in the night and. Um, that was the moment where I really noticed people were paying attention. They had no idea why I was telling them about being like 17 years old and like climbing into boxcars, but they wanted to see where it was going, you know? And so, um, and I just figured like, I like the challenge of this stuff. Like you say, is so dark and, um, it can be, it's overwhelming for me. And I'm, you probably deal with this too. Like, even if you've been in this for a long time, like there's just, you see stuff once in a while and you just can't believe like, this is the reality we're living in. And people just shut down. I think if it's too, too overwhelming, you know, and too depressing, <laughs> people shut down, you know, like, like Sue Ko, the artist, um, uh, I, I mean, I'm a huge, she's one of my biggest inspirations and she's also, she's not exactly a ray of sunshine, you know, like she, um, and she's proud of that. And, 
But the thing that works with her is she's a brilliant artist, you know? So the subject matter is um, very difficult to look at sometimes, but she's a master, you know? Um, and she's also one of the smartest people you're ever going to meet. And she uh, is funny. So that was like, I'm not as good as a Suko. So I need to be funny. Like I'm, I'm not the writer that she, I'm not near the level of, competency at writing that she is with um printmaking and painting and drawing and so i have to be very funny <laughs> to keep people engaged i think you know well, you wouldn't know I, it from this interview but i have to be very very funny oh you're hilarious yeah i know i, I found <laughs> i found the book quite humorous at times the you know the teenage exploits are always a you know good source of fodder for situations oh yeah yeah so um yeah and you mentioned suko and she did the cover art for the book, which I'm looking at right now, and is stunning. And I don't know if she's as well known in Canada as she is in the States, but if any mm -hmm. listeners have not checked out her work before, I encourage you to take a peek. It's very stirring and um, super important. Yeah. So, yeah. Peter, one thing that struck me about the book and hearing you describe that it was mostly complete in 2017 makes it all the more interesting that you do have one chapter that focuses heavily on the disease risks posed by factory farming, including, uh, you know, how factory farming practices put the entire world at risk in a future influenza pandemic. And it's just incredible that you wrote this pre-March 2020 when that risk suddenly became very real to all yeah. of us listening. Um, I wonder if you could describe a little bit for listeners who haven't thought about the mechanisms mm -hmm. by which factory farms are breeding grounds for different forms of influenzas that can mutate. Um, how is it that factory farms pose such a problem? Well, it's just like, um, you know, we've, we've all become really acquainted with this idea of social distancing um, to slow the spread of a, a virus, you know? Um, and this, a simple way to think about it is that's impossible. Um, when you cram thousands of chickens in a barn, you know, hundreds or thousands of pigs in a barn, like um, no one did that disease, you know, slowing the spread of disease or the mutation of disease was never on anybody's mind when these systems were created. And um, so they're basically, if you wanted to design an influenza factory, you would design like, especially the, the US model of let's say chicken production. You could talk about pigs too, but um, where you have in one building, thousands and thousands of birds crammed in there and then there's a building right next door to it on the same property with the same thing. And then they're all clustered on properties around like a feed mill because one company basically controls or owns everything. So you have the same people and the same trucks um, going in and out of all these different facilities. And you have all these birds and giant fans blowing the air out of the barn. Um, and it's just... Um, you know, I actually talk about this in the book. There, there was a bird flu, bird influenza outbreak in the United States and in Canada around 2014, 2015. And I don't know, I haven't researched as much the Canadian outbreak, but I know it was compared to the United States, it was small and quickly contained because, and this may just be a factor of economics or whatever, but you don't have the same degree of clustered together huge networks of chicken farms like in one county there'll be 
um, way more chickens um, than than it's just it's a really bad idea. So in the United States, the, the bird flu spread to 15 states or something like that. It did like three billion dollars worth of damage. They killed they killed so many birds. And in Canada, and you may know this better than I do, but it was just a tiny version of that. Like it was the same virus, but it was under control much more quickly. And I think everybody understands these concepts a little bit more now, like you said, post-March 2020, like you need to stop these things before they start spreading because it just gets exponentially worse and it can mutate, you know, as we're seeing with the coronavirus right now. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, No, I think it's something that people put relatively little thought into previously. And even if they did, I mean, I certainly thought about this a little bit. It was always so speculative. It never felt like it would actually happen to us. And yet here we are. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and you know, obviously stopping it before it it, it gets anywhere is, is is key. As we've seen, it's uh, pretty difficult to put the genie back exactly. into the bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, you know, that's super interesting. So, do you do you see any cause for for hope that our political leadership and policymakers are going to do anything to address the looming threat that factory farms pose to viral outbreaks? Oh boy, I don't know. Um, in the United States, well, obviously, I'm a little bit more hopeful um, about the federal government. I mean, um, we will see. There's, there's things are still up in the air in the United States uh, in terms of the U.S. Senate at the time of this interview. But, um, but. I don't know. In my my lifetime, like it could not have been worse for farm animals or the environment under um, the Trump administration. Um, and um, in the United States, I mean, the federal government's never been very good on farm animal stuff. They're just never very good because we have just these powerful, you know, we have a farm lobby that rivals like the the gun lobby and the gun lobby, as you know, <laughs> probably everybody knows uh, if you don't have to pay that much attention to the United States, but the gun lobby pretty much gets what it wants, you know? Um, and, um, but I'm hopeful with the new administration um, that will at least be dealing with um, a level of rationality. Um, and I do think, elected officials and the people they represent now understand like it was it's very difficult to before march 2020 some of the stuff did seem very abstract and like oh yeah a lot of bad things could happen it's sort of like yeah there might be a nuclear war but you know probably not going to happen but now everybody's seen what can happen and you know it's i try not to it's depressing to think about it too much because the influenza strains that, that are of concern for human public health are up to 20 times more lethal than the Corona, you know, than COVID-19. Um, so imagine what's happening now times 20, you know? Um, so I think people are, are going to, be expecting more and are going to, under, they're going to have a vocabulary for like, oh yeah, this is a dumb idea. Um, but you still see things like the New York Times ran a story about how the dairy industry in the United States is hurting. 
And I, I still cannot wrap my head around how you can write a whole story about this product without mentioning that, oh yeah, by the way, no one really needs this product. You know, like <laughs> no one really needs this. It's like the emperor's new clothes. And they talk about how, you know, sales are declining and plant milk sales are going up and environmental impact. You might mention like nobody, nobody needs this. You know, this is like cotton candy. Um, but it's just, it's just taken for granted. Like, oh yeah, we've always done this. So we're just going to keep doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. We've started to see a tiny shift on that in Canada because our, our Canadian food guide, which was released, oh, I think two years ago this month, the updated version actually eliminated dairy as having its own category as, you know, wow. important nutrient that should be in people's diet. And now they kind of lump all protein products together and encourage people not just to eat uh, meat or dairy, but to emphasize legumes and alternative proteins. And so dairy is sort of lumped in together with all these other uh, nutrients, which is obviously much more scientifically appropriate, but it's been cool to see the narrative evolve in some of these media stories, not entirely because our dairy industry still is very powerful like yours is. Actually, ours yeah. has been compared by federal politicians in Canada to the U.S. gun lobby. <laughs> <laughs> dairy in Canada is known as having that kind of power. But uh, wow. yeah, it just kind of shows the power of one policy change like that, which starts to trickle down and influence the way that people talk about and relate to these products. And they're seeing them as increasingly less necessary if even the government food guide doesn't require them. So Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I grew up, uh, I'm in, in Vancouver, BC right now. They grew up right on the other side of the border. Like my dad went to grade school, like a mile from the border. And I grew up right on the other side of the border. And it's a weird time. I, I came from Seattle to Vancouver, but the difference between the two countries and the, and the cities, you know, like Kentucky Fried Chicken is advertising like their plant-based meat product up here. I mean, I'm sure it's targeted at me, but you know, um, it's just, there's a lot of stuff available here. I'd say there's more in the more mainstream sort of grocery stores and stuff. I see more um, plant-based milks and more um, there's like a whole range of vegan salad dressings. Like that I just saw at like, I'll, I won't, I don't remember the name, but it's like a very generic grocery store, you know, and there's just this whole range of like vegan salad dressings, which you don't really see. I mean, you're seeing it more in the U.S., but um, it's interesting to see the differences. Oh, and it's curious to me that you notice a difference. I guess it depends on where one is located, but we always kind of think of the U.S. as having way better products. And <laughs> the constant thing here that we complain about is just that you guys will get something, and then like five years later, it'll be approved in Canada, and so we'll have to. Oh yeah. You know, anytime there's a work trip to Chicago or New York, I stock up on like whatever cheese you can't buy in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a little bit of the grass is always greener, but, you know, like in the neighborhood I'm in right now, and it's probably because I'm in Vancouver, you know, <laughs> but uh, I can walk a few blocks and get a vegan croissant, you know, I can walk, you know, there's a vegan burger place a few blocks from me, like, um, I don't know, big city life in Canada, I'd say you have a lot of great, great plant-based options. Yeah, we're certainly not hurting these days in places like Toronto, Vancouver, or really, you know, anywhere. I'm always struck by when I travel these days or when I used to travel when, when that was okay to do, <laughs> uh, you know, pretty much any major city that you go to now, no matter where it is in the world, is like pretty good on vegan options. And that wasn't the case yeah. a decade ago. 
So it's been cool to see that shift. And I, you know, I think it's definitely inspiring people not to go vegan and totally eschew animal products, at least to incorporate more of those products into their lives, which has a similar impact. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Peter, I'm wondering, you know, again, because the subject matter of the book is so heavy and you introduce levity to it, which I, which I enjoy and appreciate. Um, but how do you manage to maintain a positive attitude, assuming that you do manage to maintain a positive attitude when you're doing your work and when you're thinking about the future of where animal protection uh, and farm animal protection litigation and law might be going? Um, well, I have seen things change. I mean, along the lines of what we're talking about if you would have told me in the late nineties when I was getting into this stuff, that there would be all of these products available, which indicates that people want them, you know, um, to some, you know, they're not making these just, just on a whim, you know, I would have been surprised. And um, I was thinking just the other day, like a friend of mine at HSUS, I just moved to Washington DC and it was 2005 and I didn't know that many people. And he's like, he called me up and he's like, Hey, Peter, I want to invite you to something. Uh, and I was like, Oh, that's great. Like, I'd love to, I'd love to be invited to something. He's like, yeah, I'm ordering some pizzas and we're going to call um, Trader Joe's stores uh, managers for a couple of hours this afternoon. And I'd already said yes, you know? And so I had to go down to this guy's apartment. Um, he's a great guy, <laughs> but I had to go to, um, go to his apartment and call up random Trader Joe's store managers for two hours, which is like, I would rather shave my head with a cheese grater, you know, yeah. um, than do that kind of thing. And, but I just remember talking to some of these managers and they're like, this is never going to happen. Like we're never going to have cage free eggs. Like I know, I know you're calling from the humane society. <laughs> it's never going to happen. You should just, and I, I can remember kind of wanting to believe him, you know, um, but within a couple months, they did, you know, they, they kind of caved in. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, the bigger point is since 2005, you know, we did a lot of work on battery cages in the United States. A lot of my whole career has to do with battery cages, whether it's litigation or ballot initiatives. And um, not just through HSUS's work, but we've seen like cage-free eggs used to be like 2% or less of the U.S. market. And they're up around, I don't even know right now, but it's up around a quarter of the market in the United States right now. And that's, I didn't expect it to move that quickly. And it's sort of accelerating. Um, um, so that makes me a little bit more optimistic. Um, and I do think like, you know, what is it, Whitney Houston, the children of the future? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I mean, the younger people, I think, are, are very interested in this. Um, and I think they, they get it um, more so maybe than my generation did. Um, so, um, yeah, I wish I had, like you, I wish I had more faith in the governments <laughs> of, uh, you know, you know, countries but um, I'm also hopeful about local governments. I think there's a lot that can be done locally. Um, and I know in the United States, like they hate that. Like, you know, they hate when like the city of Oakland or Los Angeles passes a law that makes them alter their business. Um, 
they'd much prefer you to try to pass laws at the federal level because then they can just, they have a, a whole building full of lobbyists in Washington, D.C., and they can just crush it. And then they keep everything uniform. But, you know, if Los Angeles bans the use of a bullhook in circuses, you know, not long after that, Ringling Brothers will say, all right, you know what? We're not taking elephants on the road anymore because if we can't go to Los Angeles, you know. Um, so I do think there's there's reasons to be hopeful. Yeah, I, I love what you say about municipal governments. I feel like at least in Canada, that's an almost totally untapped avenue of, of activism and strategy that can be explored. And some of the coolest things that have happened in recent years have happened at the municipal level. And yeah, your, your point about the lobbyists not holding as much sway with those individuals, I think is is totally right. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then they have to hire local lobbyists and stuff like that. And they have to learn all the different rules you know not just different state rules but different like city rules and certain cities in the united states have their own culture where like you can't just like you need a new york city lobbyist to get something done in new york city <laughs> like you need somebody with experience who will work with you because if you bring in somebody that's not you know from what i understand from people that work in local government up there so yeah, they just prefer to fight you at the national level. That was the tobacco industry playbook. Like, they're like, always fight at the federal level if you can. State level is second best. Local level is their least favorite um, place to, to fight. Mm, well, that's super good insight because the local level is also so much more accessible for people doing grass work, grassroots activism work. It's not like you need a whole apparatus to lobby across the country. It's really just, uh, you know... Sometimes as few as like five to 10 legislators that you've got to reach and convince of your. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know about the states. Well, I do know about the states, actually. I, I think it's probably uh, almost impossible to pass anything at the federal level. Like certainly in Canada, we've we've seen three bills pass in the last uh, legislative session. And before that, it was basically 100 years since Canada had passed any new federal legislation. And the reason for that is just because those organizations are very powerful when they're able to lobby across the country. So, yeah, I think starting small is a great approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's tricky, like, when you have such powerful industries in, you know, like, we had this terrible senator. I, I've already forgotten his name, which is kind of great. But we had the senator from Iowa who was in the oh, news for Steve a lot Pace. of other... Yeah, Steve King. <laughs> Even I know about I Steve King. He's awful. Yeah. Oh, he's <laughs> unbelievable. And I would say, like, the Stephen Colbert bits he did on Steve King were some of the best, like, political satire I've ever seen. They're, like, animal-focused, too. If you can find those on the... They're well worth watching. But, I mean, there was way more chickens in his district than there were people. And so it's no surprise. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything he was doing was just insane um, for on farm animal issues. Um, but yeah, if you have way more chickens, way more chicken, um, dollars in your, among your constituency, you're gonna, it's gonna skew things, obviously, I guess. Yeah, huge problem, huge disparity of resources in this type of work. I, I think about that a lot and, you know, how incredible it is that despite working against industries that are worth billions and can spend billions on lobbying and marketing and advertising campaigns, 
that activists in many places, including the states and your organization, nonetheless managed to convert 25% of the marketplace to, to cage-free eggs. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of a hopeful note to look towards for the future is that the, the pace of social change isn't always linear and it's certainly not always predictable, but it is hopefully moving in the right direction for farmed animals. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me. And, and thanks for writing this book. I think it'll be of a, a ton of interest to a bunch of our listeners. So if you haven't read it already, I encourage you guys to check it out. And we will, of course, link to it in the show notes. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Take care. You too. Heroes and Zeros. Now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and zeros. You're up first, Camille. Who is our hero? Well, we've got hundreds of thousands of heroes this week, or perhaps millions. I'm actually not sure how many in the end. Uh, we want to give a well-deserved hero award to everyone that did Veganuary this month. Veganuary, of course, is, you know, start off the year on the right foot, go vegan for the month of January, give it a try, see how you like it, see if you want to make the switch more permanently. And I know... Tons of people, including a good friend of mine from high school who went vegan for January and ended up sticking with it because she found it to be a really cool, sustainable way of eating and she felt better. And this year, apparently, there's been a record number of people enrolled in Veganuary, Peter, mm. which to me is just really inspiring. And there's a lot of theories about how the pandemic and the sort of period of change that we're in where more of us are eating at home has been really good for people adopting vegan diets. So I applaud that. I want to say Thank you to everyone who took part in Veganuary, and I hope you stick with it. Well, my whole family went Veganuary for January, Camille. We just signed right up and dove right in, and off we go. We're continuing all the way along. Even though it's still the month of January, it has just been delicious. Woo! Woo! Our zero. This is Let Me Hope, Camille. As we record this, can I say we're recording this on January 19th? We can say that, can't we, Camille? I just oh, said yeah. it. So it is January 19th. And for those of you who are unaware of the significance of January 19th, 2021, it is the last day that we have to refer to our friends, the neighbors to the South, and mention the words President Trump. Today is the last day, thank God, of the Trump presidency. And... Um, we are going out with a zero. Now, we can't give this to President Trump himself, although indirectly, I'm sure we can. Can't we, Camille? For a variety of reasons. <laughs> sure, for a lot of reasons. But our zero is the Trump followers who decided in Florida to scrape the word Trump onto the back of a manatee, a protected animal in Florida. That, Camille, gets you a zero on pawn order. Huge zero. Like, oh, why is it? It's such a terrible that? story. Now, the good news is, we should say, the good news is it doesn't seem like the manatee was actually harmed by the scraping. It, it seems to have been just the way it was done. But it's nonetheless, obviously, the manatee had to be captive for that scraping to take place, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you scrape Trump into a manatee otherwise. It just seems like that man brings out the worst in people and so many ways that we can't even count, but including toward animals. Absolutely. So that gives us just a great chance, aside to point out that the idiots who did this are a big zero. But hey, 
It's a fitting way to end January 19th, 2021. I certainly hope, Camille, because tomorrow is inauguration day, that the end of civilization doesn't come with it. I'm hoping for a safe inauguration tomorrow. I should point out, though it has not been mentioned on this show, that Camille and I um, were wrapped, huddled together figuratively um, speaking through as the U.S. Capitol was stormed as we couldn't believe our eyes. That was a couple of weeks before Paul and Order. But nonetheless, um, that was pretty unbelievable. And now I'm hoping we have a, a really clean, safe day tomorrow and herald uh, the beginning of hopefully a new era in the United States. I hope so, too. Sending sending big hugs to all our American friends down there who are stressed out about these issues right now. I'm, I've never been happy to never been happier to be Canadian. I can tell you that. And I say that knowing, of course, the risk that this podcast will be, I, I repeat, recorded January 19th. So we have no idea what might happen tomorrow. And uh, if something terribly unexpected does happen, I hope everybody will understand. We were recording today on a day of optimism, Camille, looking forward to something <laughs> wonderful tomorrow. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All well, right. thanks, Camille. I again, happy anniversary. I I, I look forward to the gift coming by mail um, of my new leather bag or whatever I'm going to get. Three years, Camille. It goes so fast. Okay, watch your watch your mailbox. <laughs> Bye, everyone. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!